0: And to that piece of shit, lieutenant that's always uh, on his podcast, yeah, us. Yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome New York's finest, retired and unfiltered podcast. We have, in my opinion, the most misunderstood cop in NYPD in recent history. Edwin Raymond joining us. Um, You know, I myself have been very critical of Edwin Raymond prior to getting to know him. Uh, We've spoken offline several times after we interacted on social media. Um, He 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 was the main star in the in the video documentary Crime and Punishment, where they spoke out on broken windows, policing quotas targeting of black and brown people in policing, particularly in New York City in the NYPD. He recently wrote a book that's out. Um, it's due to be released. I've already pre-ordered it. I recommend everybody pre-orders. It's called an Inconvenient Cop. In promotion of, of that book, he is also hosting an event, Inconvenient Conversations. That's happening on October 14th. I'm um, gonna have all the, all the information you need to buy tickets to go to that event, where it is, dates, times, um, and all that. That'll be in the links below. And he's been walking around on the streets actually throughout the whole summer having inconvenient conversations, speaking to people. You know, basically the same thing that me and Eric have been trying to do on this podcast is we, we always say uncomfortable conversations. Um. So but but Edwin is saying, inconvenient, it's true. It, it, it is inconvenient. But I think this is a pivotal moment. I, I have nothing but the utmost respect. For Edwin Raymond after speaking to him several times. And, you know, I personally, I always looked at him as a polar opposite to my ideology on policing until I spoke with him. And I said, you know what, it's really not. We, we're, we're kind of the same about everything. We're here. We're speaking our truth. Yeah, uh, people disagree on certain issues. But I think all in all, when we get to know each other and we actually sit down, we're all human. We all have our own views, our own heart, and it's very important we speak our own truths, because somewhere in the middle is actually the truth, right? It's not my truth. It's not Edwin's truth. It's not Eric's truth. There's the truth, and we have all our views around it. As always, I'm joined by the most complained cop in NYPD history. known one has the boogeyman on the streets of the Bronx. Eric, yes, damn. Eric how you doing, my brother?
0: Outstanding. I'm super excited about this show, Edwin Raymond. Obviously, I've heard the scuttlebutt about you within the department while I was on the job. Of course, I saw the documentary, Crime and Punishment. And so, for what I've heard, for some people, you appear to be a polarizing figure. And for some, you've, you're a support system to that. And, and I always coin this, and I say this all the time, we spoke offline, that opposition meets opportunity. And that's basically what you're saying by inconvenient conversations or uncomfortable conversations. And I think communication breaks barriers. It it unarms everyone, and it really gets down to the root of things. And I was talking with John the other day, and I said, I love to talk to people to find out where their perception came from, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. But just basics. If we watch the movie Batman, and we see, how did Jack Nicholson become the Joker? He falls into a bat of chemicals. So it's the same thing. How did I become... Become the person that I am in my perception of policing as the most complaining cop, or how did John become, you know, get in his position, his perception of vaccine mandates, and Edwin yourself in your position of, of your view on policing. So I think that it shows extreme courage for you to come on the show. I think most people expect this to be complete opposition, but I think we have a lot more commonalities than we all are going to be surprised by. So, first, let's just start out. I'd love to have you introduce yourself and tell us where you grew up and why and how you became a cop.
2: All right guys, so first, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be on the show. Um, you know, I've been watching John first on Twitter and then as you started growing your Instagram page and now the YouTube channel, uh, it's, been, it's been remarkable to see the transition and the growth. And honestly, you're just getting started. This thing, because of this subject matter, it's really just gonna keep growing because this is something that we cannot ignore. As a nation, despite where our views are, and conversations like this is what drives drives the needle in the right direction. So, uh, Eric, to start, I was born and raised in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. That's where I still live. Um, my parents migrated from the Caribbean, from Haiti. And um, unfortunately, I lost my mom at a very young age. I was, I was only three years old when she passed away. Uh, my dad didn't speak English. Very poor. We're very, very poor, like struggling poor. Um, and during the crack epidemic. You know, you can imagine, I mean, you know, you, you, we were all here. We, we know what the nation was like in the 80s, and 90s, early 2000s. Um, but for some reason, despite that, that, that surrounding, I was always able to walk a pretty straight line. You know, granted, I'm, I'm a teenager. I'm going to make mistakes. It's part of life. But for the most part, as friends started getting into certain things, certain activities, certain habits, it, thankfully, thank God, it, just, it, just, it, it didn't happen to me. Um, it's something, something I'm still trying to figure out so I can try to pass it on to others. Why was I able to keep my mind and keep my head straight despite everything that I was surrounded with? Um, I started getting stop and frisked around 15, 16 years old. And I get it. The block is hot. Right. I get it. I've seen it. I know what goes on. But I wasn't involved. So it, it, it would confuse me and it would always be a white cop. So it was at 15, 16. It was so easy to just. Oversimplified as he's racist, you know he's white. I'm, I'm I'm black. He's fucking racist, right? And then at 18, it was it was like a pivotal moment that was really life changing. Uh, the cop was black, right? I grew up in the six seven precinct. It was now knowing the department, it could have been borough crime, it could have been six seven crime. It was a Dominican guy, right? He stopped me on the corner, threw me on threw me on the fence. I was walking with my girlfriend at the time. I was only 18 years old. Uh, completely embarrassed me. Uh, emptied the contents of my pockets, put it on the, you know, just threw it on the ground. Um, And then they just jumped in the the unmarked vehicle and drove off. Um, And that that just, I I couldn't shake that that, that experience. Like a week later, it was the only thing on my mind. And I made the decision, I'm gonna join the police department because I need to understand why that black man also treats me that way. You know, if it's a white guy, it's easy to say, oh, typical racism. And then I joined the police department and I just, you know, I went to the academy. I was very shocked. That within the academy, I wasn't able to identify what about the training leads to the way that I was being treated. You know, and it wasn't just me as my peers. I went to high school in Manhattan and most schools in Manhattan, the students are from all five boroughs. So as I speak to my peers in school and we start trading stories at the lunch table about cops violating us. I'm like, wait, it's happening to you in Stapleton. It's you in Mott Haven, you in East Harlem, you in Jamaica, you, you in Bed-Stuy too. You know, so I'm saying oh, this is just how cops treat black folks. But again, when it's, when it, when it was a, another black person, Dominican man, I said, no, nah, I gotta, I gotta get in there and see what's going on. And yeah, um, I'll, I'll wait for more questions, but that's basically the intro and, you know, a little bit about me and why I joined the, why I got on the job.
1: I appreciate that. Eric, I muted you. Just mute yourself on and off between between because you got wind in the background. But, uh, Edwin, like you, I, you know, I was stopped a lot as a, as a youth. I was arrested twice. I mean, I, I won't get into it, but basically I was flaked twice. I've been stopped a, a million times, uh, tons of summonses. Um, I always had a chip on my shoulder and they said, Oh, it's cause we're Italian. Right. And I went in with that viewpoint. I did have a disdain with the police, but I started working at a very young age. I became a recruiter and I was working in Midtown while I put myself through college. And I noticed that as I started working and I stopped hanging out in the park and I stopped hanging out with with the people that were bringing heat on me. I wasn't bad. I wasn't doing anything. And I always had the, I'm not, you know, it's not me. These guys are just stopping me everywhere I go, everything I do, you know, what is it? What is it? What is it? Um, and I kind of evolved early out of, wow it's me putting myself in that situation um but you know and then you join the police department right and it's a whole new world could you walk us through you stepping in the police department as a black man as a youth who had a similar disdain that i did and a similar questioning of the police what, what, what your perception of that was, you know, was it, was it, was it scary? Did you feel outcasted? Anything that you could provide any details?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I'll start by saying, I remember hearing you share that story about you having issues with cops as a team. And I'll be honest, it, it shocked me. I I wouldn't have expected that. Right. Because you being a white guy, Italian guy. um, And I think it's part of the reason for that is we don't speak enough about race because it's become taboo since, let's be honest, since the civil rights movement, 60s, 70s, it's probably the most impolite conversation you can have in public. Um, my, like, I went, I also started working very young. I started working at 12, which isn't even legal, but that probably helped save my life because I would literally come home from work and my friends would be involved in certain things. I'm like, when did we start doing this? You know, we're, we're still trying to beat Street Fighter. Like, when, do, you know, like, when did we start doing all these things? And. Um, when I was 15, I started working in Jersey City. And I'll be honest with you, it's the first time I ever saw a white person that was poor. Homeless white person. I, that was an oxymoron to me before 15. My only reference to poverty and whiteness was the movie Home Alone, where the, you know, the homeless woman comes and save, saves Kevin. And I thought that was, might as well be an episode of Star Trek, you know, because I didn't think white and poor could even exist in the same sentence. And that, again, that goes with not speaking about race, not discussing race. Not understanding race, but I entered the police department 2008, 22 years old, um, and from day one in the police, you know, on the line in front of Queens College, that boot camp mentality where the the you know the the instructors start messing with us and um, with me, they kept staring, and and I knew what it was, you know, it was it was this hair. They look they were looking at me like, how did this guy make it this far with that hair? And um, in the academy, that was probably one of the main issues I had. I I got, I think I got four CDs in the academy because of my hair. That was like my first fight. Um, I had to go to EEO. Um, That's when I learned how EEO was kind of frowned upon. It was, you know, it was like, you go to EEO, it's like, you're part of the problem. Um, But again, as I said before, in the police academy, I still couldn't pinpoint what it was that was leading to the ways that I was being treated. So... We graduate, the, so I get a collar in the academy. I get an, I'm one of the award recipients that walks on the stage. You know, my, my friends and family are proud. I go, I choose transit as an award recipient. You get to choose where you want to go. I chose transit. Day one, impact transit. It was in Transit District 30 in Brooklyn. I will never forget when the Lieutenant said um, 410 and 10. I'm like, 410 and 10, is that an address? What is 410 and 10? And that's when, you know, we learned that we had to get four arrests, 10 summonses, and 10 stop and frizz. And I was thinking, okay, maybe this is a rookie thing, so that you can, you know, get your feet wet, so that when things happen organically, you know the paperwork, you know the process, etc. And then they paired us up with veteran officers who just had six months more prior experience, six, six months more experience prior. And it was all about those numbers, John and Eric. Like it was all about those numbers. Like I watched people I knew in the police academy were great people, and I watched them. You know, I'd back them up when they when they're running a name, or I'd be working with them for the day, and they would turn into people I didn't even recognize. And then I started seeing what the so-called veterans would do, and you know, we learned from them quickly. Get it out the way because you got vacation coming. Because what people don't know is, if you have to, if you work twenty days out of the month and your quote is four ten and ten. You should adjust the quota. I mean, the quota shouldn't exist, but for the, for hypothetically, if you work only 10 days, shouldn't the quota be two, five, and five? NYPD doesn't accept two, five, and five. They don't care if you work one day, it's four, 10, and 10 every month. So I watch as my colleagues would ice pick, which for those who don't know, that just means you don't care what it is. If it's in the law book, you're running the name, you're, you're hoping that there's a warrant, you're getting the collar, you're writing the summons. And so I start watching this and I'm questioning it, right? And I'll be honest. If it was a white colleague, I w- I didn't feel comfortable having the conversation about yo, what the fuck is this? What what is this? But if it was a black or Hispanic colleague, I'd say yo, like you don't think this is crazy? And that was the first lesson that I got. That I was young and ambitious and joined with I was a young man on a mission. Everyone just needed to. Everyone else mostly just needed to pay their bills. They did not join thinking they did not analyze the issues. They what, what do you need me to do? Okay, I'm going to go do it. But one of the most beautiful experiences being on the job was being peers with white folks, because you might not realize it, but most black folks are not peers with white folks. White folks are usually our bosses, the person that determines if you get the job, you know, the CEO, etc. So on the job, your white colleague is a peer. And when you're peers with someone, you get to have real conversation of real human experience. And I started making good friends with a lot of white you know, white, 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 folks um, who I love to this day, my brothers and sisters to this day, outside of the blue uh, identity, just human, you understand? And it was, it was a breath of fresh air when they were questioning the shit too, especially those from Long Island. It was like 511, which is a suspended license. You know, one, one colleague said, out in Nassau, that's a summons, you know? They'll, or they'll just say, have somebody with a license come pick up the car. I'm like, really? I can't even fathom that you can get a summons for a suspended license, because since I was 10 years old, I was watching people in my neighborhood be arrested for it. So I'm starting to piece everything together. And I'm like, wait, why are we being policed so aggressively in the name of keeping us safe? Because, yes, if you police aggressively, are you going to get the shooter every now and then? Of course. But prior, before you get that shooter or while getting that shooter, you're going to get a lot of the people that you're trying to keep from getting shot, you know? And that's what I didn't understand. Like, so I, I was 22 and I'm like, now that I'm part of the blue, I can voice these opinions and we can fine tune the formula so that we are more surgical in how we get real violent criminals without having to affect everyone else. Cause it's like, you're trying to get the needle in the haystack to protect the haystack from the needle. So you don't burn the haystack, <laughs> you understand? And I, th- the way I see broken windows policing is we're burning the haystack to get the needle in the name of keeping the haystack safe from that very needle. To me, it, 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 the purpose gets defeated. But uh, I'll pause just so you could uh, elaborate, ask more questions.
0: Well, first of all, you said it's a breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air to, to listen to you. For one, that's a fantastic analogy. And I, you said you watch the podcast. So you know I love analogies. I always give analogies to different things, different movies. And for one, I, what I could say here is, my analogy is always this. So for one, let me just circle back and say that absolutely after hearing what you had to say, we have much more commonalities than I thought we did. So I would always say that the police department leadership is responsible for any positive contributions, but absolutely for any negative contributions to the community is the upper echelon. I always said there's no bad troops, there's only bad leaders. But unfortunately, it's the police officers, the boots on the ground, that are actually tangible to the public they can't get to the actual leadership but it's the leadership that's causing this problem i think stop question frisk which is a court case of 1976 people versus the board. i think is a fantastic tool if used properly and what happened was it just completely got distorted so my my analogy is always this is that the police department instead of giving proper training and being surgical as you said and i love that terminology and use a precision policing. What they did was they just didn't throw, didn't train anyone, just threw out a giant net. We threw out this huge net and we stopped everyone. And yes, we caught some big fish in that net, but we also caught a lot of little fish. And that is what really damaged and deteriorated that community and police and relationship because it was a valuable tool that was used improperly. So I think a lot of people from hearing what you had to say immediately, had the perception or assumption that you're going to say something that's completely based on race. But what I'm hearing is something completely different. And what you're saying is the problem that was distorted by quotas. And I remember, it's funny you said about Stapleton. So I grew up in Stapleton. I also worked in Stapleton with John in the once wall Priest. And the same thing like you, I had a one-block footpost. It wasn't even the size of a full block. It was encompassing the Stapleton houses. And I remember the same thing they told me Five and five. And that meant five summonses and five stop questions, fresh reports. I remember saying, how am I going to find five people in an eight-hour period on this small little block that I suspect is about to commit a crime? I mean, I would have to have a laser, and I have a pretty good observation skills, but I would have to have a laser sharp eye. So the problem is putting the quota on a valuable tool that distorted, let's just stop everyone, and then the lack of training. And the cops didn't really understand that stop, question, fist, stop, question, fist, was an actual court case, and they didn't understand. They never had the training to understand that when I'm actually detaining someone, that it's under the Fourth Amendment, and then I actually have to do a stop report because this actually covers and explains why I detained this person and held them against their will. Well, they were actually doing the report when they were just engaging conversations. So again, I thank you for that. So yeah, I, 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 I want to say, good, ahead, good. Ahead, I'm sorry. I, I, no, 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 no problem. I really, I, I, I want to thank you for that. But. So, do you think there is a correlation between racist policing and quotas?
2: Okay. Um, I do because, so there's a woman who's a friend. She's a very, very conservative, but we are genuinely friends. She's like a mother to me, right? Um, and we've had so many discussions for over 10 years But her husband is not as uh, astute, if you will. And he understood, when we would discuss race, he would understand me up until the point that I explained systemic racism. You know, to him, race is something individual. The way that it can be interwoven into policy, have the same racial outcome, despite what the individual feels about race, that was just a little too much for him to, to grasp. So... Regardless of John, regardless of what you think about anyone, anyone's race, ethnicity, Eric, same thing. If you blindly enforce with the quotas, especially the way we do in particular communities, believe it or not, you are indirectly, you're directly but unknowingly contributing to to systemic racism. And this is a concept that's so hard for people to grasp. It's already interwoven in the policy because, you know, and I first learned this at funerals, it was a funeral for an officer, I think it was maybe my second funeral. I ran into some, it was like three years on the job, I ran into someone from the academy. I hadn't seen him since Madison Square Garden, right? December 2008. And it was like, oh shit, what's up, Ray? you, You still in transit? Yeah. And the third question, without fail, the third question is some version of, what are they asking over there? What do they want from you guys over there? AKA, what's the quota where you work, right? And that's when I realized colleagues that went to certain parts of the city, they had, I mean, there was one one and a quarter, you know, one a quarter, one arrest every three months. It'd be like, and if you didn't get it, it wasn't the end of the world. It would happen organically, security holding, different things that, uh, you know, domestic, it would happen organically, but it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas myself and colleagues that went into the hood, you know, you, no, you better get those numbers. And intuitively it might be well you know those other parts where there's no quota are people are their bodies in the street you know and there are it right but in the hood in the seven five seven three you know uh three two two eight um is it one two oh whatever i don't know where Stapleton is one two oh stapleton you know in these areas of of the city this is where the bodies are so this is where this more aggressive policing is necessary i get it right and and that's not a terrible, terrible point. But the problem is we still have to be more surgical in how we do it. That fishnet that you just mentioned, Eric, it's not the way. I'm telling you it's not the way. Our most successful arrests on this job have all been intelligence-based. It hasn't been broken windows. Intelligence, right? Investigations uh, you know, t- with, with, the, with the, the district attorney's office, et cetera. And how do we get intelligence? We get intelligence from the people. When the NCO program was first um, introduced in 2015, 2016, um, an executive, who I won't name, said, shit, you know, if we knew kissing babies would have, you know, got us all this information to make these bigger collars, we should have done this years ago. You understand? Because they realized a better relationship allows for intelligence. There was a massive shooting um, in Brownsville, a few, I think in 2019, I think 13 people were shot or something in old timer's day um, the the reason that case was solved so quickly and, and you know thousands pe- thousands of people are out there is because someone who witnessed the shooting called a retired community affairs officer who had retired from the job years ago but that intelligence was able to solve that case in in hours now imagine if it wasn't just community affairs that had the rapport right because one thing I was taught by a so-called veteran was You can't really be too buddy buddy with people because they they might have to be your summits next month and then that's just a terrible way to see it but as long as this is what the 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 leadership incentivizes this is how people are going to operate so you said it eric it's all about the leadership and when you think about when i first spoke out that's essentially all i did i didn't bash cops i put the spotlight on the leadership i was under the impression cops would understand and appreciate that but instead I got called everything from a rat to a zero to man on was it the rant? I was called a, a dreadlock savage. it was crazy. Some of it was funny, you understand oh, still. <laughs> Yeah which is why you know one, of the, things, one of the one of the questions I have for you both was first if you can acknowledge and then if you can elaborate why you think that is. And if you don't acknowledge if you think you know what my observation is is wrong, just elaborate on that. Many things that I've seen you both say, and I'm, I'm, when I'm driving or listening, and I'm like, "Aha, uh-huh, yep, they got it, are things that myself and the 11 others, the so-called NYPD 12, are things that we said six years ago, but we're called rats. We're called uh, uh, um, all types of zeros and, 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 and malcontents and, and disgruntled. So I'm like, wait, so when John and Eric says it, they're heroes. When John and Eric says it, they're speaking for tens of thousands. But when we said it, we were everything negative in the book. It's the same message. It's just the messenger that's changed. Why is that
0: the case?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll go first. You know, uh, I would say a lot of it's ignorance. I would say my own ignorance. When you started speaking out, I was like, oh, they're just a bunch of do nothing cops. That is 100% my perception of it, the same way I had the perception of Schoolcraft. Mm until I actually heard the story. And then I was like, you know what? It's absolutely wrong what's going on. It's absolutely wrong. Um, I will say that me and Eric, if you look at particularly the leadership of the NYPD, both past and currently, uh, mainly men that are white guys, um, they deny me and Eric. We're, we're crazy. We wear tinfoil hats. We don't know what we're talking about. Um, the rank and file do, however support our messaging. I can't speak for them. And I agree with you in part with systemic racism. I, I, where I believe that your short side is is on, is on broken windows itself. Mm-hmm. I believe broken windows as a strategy, if deployed indiscriminately throughout every borough in New York City or in throughout the nation, No differences amongst how we police the strategies we use on the street. And I do believe that the community should be a part of what minor crimes we are enforcing. I believe that each community should say, well, hey, listen, I don't want kids drinking in the park. Well, you know what? They could. They just got to get out of there by 12. Whatever those those parameters are, we serve the people. I believe that the, the pathway to public safety is through enforcement. I do believe that. But I do believe there are parts of our criminal justice system and the police department that are systemically racism. You know, I'm i I'm against bail reform, but I'm pro I'm pro common sense bail reform. I mean, if a guy can't pay to get out for a minor crime and he's going to spend time in jail and lose his job, that is systemically racist to me. And I don't, and I won't even say, and, and to me, I, uh, again, my father grew up without a father on the lower East side in the projects. His, his mother had a severe mental illness. He grew up in extreme poverty. So any situation that would like uh, uh, the average poor black person would have faced in New York City, my father would have faced the same exact situation. So I believe it's more of a poverty, a poverty discrimination. I, and because, you know, just growing up in New York City, I believe that racism is truly ignorance. Right, because I've interacted with every ethnicity. When I actually sit down and I talk to people who make racist statements or inflammatory bias statements, after I was speaking to them and questioning them, you're like, wow, this guy's just completely ignorant. He's never branched outside of his community. He's never interacted with other cultures. So I I I believe that I so I I believe that broken windows is, is a good system. I believe quotas are a heavily, heavily, heavily failed system. And it, it's pushed back in every community. Because again, I was stopped every day, dude. If I was playing basketball and the sun creaked down, I was getting a C summons. I was getting tossed. I was getting all that. And it's the same thing. And, I, and then I, you know, after the 1-2-0, I got sent to the 1-2-3 after impact. And it was the same thing with the quotas. And I was an active cop. I, I remember a month. I remember a month. My partner had fourteen arrests. I had seven. We had ten days on patrol. We solved a, a citywide burglary pattern and and a borough grand larceny pattern in that same month we we, we only had ten days on patrol and we they, we were getting asked where's our twenty two fifties and i'm like we don't even take we don't even take twenty robberies in this command yeah. for a year, but you want me to stop twenty people a month that I suspect of of uh you know and i just i, I like those things. I believe really pushed throughout the whole city i do agree with you in black and brown communities they are enforced harder and there are more cops there but i don't know and i haven't heard another way when crime is high and by deploying broken windows we did see communities change in part so that that's my
2: my that's my take on it Okay. And Eric, just jump in. I want to uh, go back.
0: I want to let Eric do his thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. First and foremost, I'd like to break this up into two components here. So the first question you're asking is, why Why did yourself amongst the 12 get this flag and we did it? Well, I will tell you this. We are actually, we're getting controlled constantly. and We are actually getting some opposition, actually a lot more than we expected. Because we're out here fighting for the cops. And we're fighting for better leadership. But I think the problem lies in this, and I've been saying this forever, is the job, the job, and when I say the job, I mean the leadership of the job. People always say, oh, the job, the job. And I, you know what I used to say? Well, well, who is the job? The job is us. Exactly. The job is the leadership, right? So I blame, again, I blame everything on leadership. And I think the problem is that the job, the people of the job, they don't attribute rely on their own information and they lack communication. And the job is based on room, on the rumor mill. So you, amongst the 12, became like these boogeymen, just like I was in the Bronx. When people didn't get an opportunity to actually communicate with you, they only heard the scuttlebutt. You know, those guys, they do nothings. They don't want to do nothing. They're just racist. They came on the job because they want they to skate through and they want an easy time. And I saw, I saw you do several interviews, and I actually said, well, he sounds quite different from what I've heard. So I think this job really lacks communication. I think they should have encouraged yourself and others to actually speak to different cops throughout the precincts, maybe amongst the unit, because communication is the key to success. And I say opposition beats opportunity, but it's through communication. And the job silences everyone, and that's actually a huge mistake. I think silence is part of cowardice, and that creates more animosity. Now, along with that, I'm sure you know I'm a big component of intrusive police work. I was a crime sergeant, special operations, tenant, at active cop. I'm a very huge component of intrusive police work. Now, there are some people on this job, particularly police they hate when I say that, they like to hear the words proactive policing, but I believe it's intrusive police work because that's what it is. People versus the war, it's a court case that gives cops the right to be intrusive based on the law, which I think is much different when we talk about proactive policing. So the problem again, I think comes down to not racist. I don't think it's racist policing, I think it's bad leadership. The leadership is competent and lazy. So if we had excellent leadership, we wouldn't have to have quotas. because the three of us, if, if all three of us right now had 24 cops and we broke eight apiece per person here as leaders, it would be our job to ensure that we know who the cops are, that they know their geographical area of employment, that they know the crimes that are going out there, that they know who the players are, and that they target the correct specific people that are in that are causing the problems in that particular area right because most of the people and, and i grew up in the, i grew up in the ones who well, grew up in a black neighborhood most of the people are good people but the cops don't know that because they're not they don't have the good leadership to guide them in the right direction as you said they told five and five four ten and ten so they don't it, it's bad leadership they're not actually making sure that they understand good police work again I think intrusive police work, it comes down to good and bad leadership. And unfortunately, we have weak leadership, and with weak leadership, you have to have quotas. So I used to tell the guys this, very simple. Well, I'm not giving you a quota, but you have to ask yourself, right, if you're working in an area where there's particularly robberies and shootings happening, you have to be out there and you have to engage the people and you have to look to stop those robberies. So if you were working at BMW. And you were in a position of sales and if you went one month without selling a car well that's possible and if you went two months but after three months are you really a salesman so it's the same thing if you work in a particular area there's robberies and shootings. if you go if you have a three-month period and you're not doing any actual police work what impact are you making but the impact that they're making is just a number and it just really withdraws from the actual good police work because not because of troops because of bad leadership and if we had good leadership that were actually trained and understood leadership skills, I think would remove that problem with this racist I- ideology of policing.
2: Great, absolutely, great point. Um, I'm gonna have a few rebuttals. I'm gonna go backwards and work my way to to the beginning. But first, uh, if I steal it, don't you know? Don't call on me. But the intrusive police work versus proactive, I've pushed back on the definition of proactive, but I've never had a definition. For you know what they consider proactive, so uh, I'm going to start saying intrusive. I give you, I give you the quote. All right, I give you the, the credit for it, um, because there's so many ways to be proactive. It's actually a very ambiguous term. There's so many ways to be proactive, so to only, you know, minimize being proactive to to just activity. That I used to always push back on that. So going backwards, um, the analogy. As someone who loves analogies, also I I, I do challenge analogy using BMW because. The difference between private sector, profit driven, um, you know, I, you probably already see where I'm going. This is a tax funded public good. You know, t- it's incomparable to something that answers to quarterly dividends and stockholders and shareholders, et cetera. It, it's just we cannot compare a public good to, to something private like that. So there are similarities, but this is where the, the difference, I think, is it's too contrasting to make that comparison. Um, so now just speaking about broken windows in general, So I stopped short of saying I support broken windows because I don't support it as a whole. But come on, common sense. If you're stopping folks, if you're interacting with folks, is there a benefit to that in in public safety? Anyone who says there isn't is not being realistic, right? But this is where I think we need to be what what I think we need to do, John and I've heard you say it so many times, I've read it all over Twitter. No one has been able to offer something, you know, some, something alternative. So this is not the whole answer. But when I had my platoon in after first being promoted, you know, obviously commanders were afraid to have that conversation with me for, you know, about numbers. But at the same time, I'll never forget my the car that I was using was in the shop. So I was using an unmarked car, the ICO's car. And um, I was going around scratching for those who don't know. That's when you just check up and inspect your your platoon, your officers. And it was, I was the car. It was the car in front of me was one of my guys I was getting ready to to inspect. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop him until after the traffic light. As we're waiting, so there was a car in, at the at the cross crosswalk, the officer's car, and then my car. And as we're waiting for the queue, the, the, the light was green, but there was a lot of traffic on the other side. A car um, cross traffic just eats the red light. So finally when the when the when the traffic starts to move, I'm expecting my officers to make the right turn. They kept going straight. I'm like, whoa. I know they saw that because I saw that and I'm behind them. So when when my when my driver hits the the siren, they pull over, hey what's up boss? You want to scratch? Sure, but um, I was just behind you and I saw that car go through that light and I was expecting you to make the right, I was gonna make the right with you and back you up. It's like, yeah, man, these, these, these fucking drivers. What do you mean? He, you're a cop, man, what do you mean these fucking drivers? Like, It's your job to make the stop. Now, and you know, the, the officer got very nervous, his lip was shivering, um, especially coming from me because I'm the guy that's anti-numbers, but it I'm not, I'm not, doesn't mean anti-work, right? Here's what I say, broken windows is usually innocuous infractions, right? Minor things. So the way I see it is the more minor, the wider the range of discretion. But I still want you to at least make the, the connection, make, make make the stop, you know, make, make the, do the encounter. Just maybe the person's having a bad day, they didn't realize they made a mistake, but at least still engage. Now, I'm not going to hold you accountable and say you're the worst cop in the world just because you didn't issue that summons. But I still expect you to at least encounter, make, engage with that person. And, he, you know, and that's what I told my platoon. Make. I don't care if you give... Now, granted, if you run the person's name and it's absolute reason to make the arrest, that's an issue. But I don't care if you give discretion every day. I want you out there at least engaging with the public. You understand? And because if there's any benefit to broken windows, you know, the constant stops, I think we still get it, John, without having to write that summons, if it if it's if you need discretion. So but here's the pushback. People are gonna take advantage of that and they're never gonna change their behavior. So this is something that I actually offered the leadership. Um, last year, I had a meeting and I said, we need an official warning system. And I worked on reengineering 2014. And this is something that my mentor and I tried to implement. Bratton said it, it wouldn't work. We were going to create a radio code because we said, they're never going to get off numbers. How about we change what the numbers are, right? How about, for lack of a better word, the cop gets the credit for making the stop, even if it doesn't end in the summons or arrest. So how do we do that? we create a, a, an official warning system that allows you to give discretion, but it's documented, right? And for folks in civil liberties, et cetera, that are, have issues with the records, we can create a fair time that it purges itself as long as you don't reoffend. That way, if someone's driving north on you know, Flatbush Avenue and you stop him, John, at Church Avenue in the 6-7, and he says he's rushing to the hospital, you, you, you document the discretion, you let him go, but then he's in Empire Boulevard, still driving, and then Eric stops him. You know, we can see, hey, you you were driving at a, at, a, at a high rate of speed. You were given discretion 10 minutes ago. But you might decide to still give him the discretion. But then he's, at, he's about to enter the, the Manhattan Bridge. So obviously he lied. And now I stop him. At that point, it's time for the summons. You know, we've documented it. There are those that are going to learn. They're going to change their behavior. But for those that don't, we have it documented. And I call it informed discretion. Right? that that was the you know you have to come up with names for these things and I think any benefits of broken windows we still get because we are making the the stops we are making the engagement but we can be fair to the public and not have to hammer the public needlessly in the in you know for for widgets on 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 a on a, on a spreadsheet um so let me see yeah and also I do want to, one one of the uh facts so broken windows when it's implemented in the nineties by Bratton, you know, Giuliani uh, buys into it. I believe it's more serendipitous, right? A pleasurable coincidence. Because crime does start to plummet. But if you watch crime nationally, it plummets everywhere. And Jay, I refuse to believe that aggressively enforcing, you know, uh, 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 the squeegee man and and, and bikes on sidewalk is causing the crime to drop all over the country because it's happening aggressively in the five boroughs specifically San Diego, and, and I implore everyone to look into the data. For, you can find it easily a 40-year um, history of crime in San Diego. San Diego's plummet in crime was even steeper than New York during the implementation of Broken Windows in the mid-'90s, and San Diego has never implemented Broken Windows. So, again, am I saying to ignore minor infections? Never, never. You know. And I had a commander um, when I was a lieutenant that said, Edwin, I want to let you know you have reminded me Always do your research. Always take everything with a grain of salt, because I would have never imagined that you are who you are. You know, we had maybe four gun collars as a as a morning lieutenant. It's hard to get a gun arrest in the morning, period. So morning lieutenant, my platoon had four gun arrests. And, you know, we we did our jobs uh, uh, accordingly without having to hammer the community. Um, So that's that's my pushback a little bit. And that's my agreeing. Uh, Let me know what you guys think.
1: Yeah, sure. So I so here's my here's my take. Right. I, I agree with enforcing minor crimes, but I don't agree with throwing out a net and always enforcing minor crimes. So I was a crime sergeant. I get a young guy on my team. This is first. He starts out late in the month. He's got to get his two cars, Right. Calls me. Oh, boss, I got one over here. I'm like, what do you got? I got a gravity knife. Hmm. I go over there. It's a guy with a construction helmet. Tools on his belt and a gravity knife in his pocket. He's like, I'm like, what happened? He goes, he just came off the train in plain view, gravity knife, Spanish guy. I was like, all right, uh, do me a favor, I take him out of cuffs, write him a 250, let him go. Uh and he's like, boss, I gotta get my numbers. I'm like, this isn't your guy. He's coming for he's coming home from work. Now I'm a big proponent of, and I know you're gonna have what, what you're gonna have to say about this, and but but please let me finish. I'm a big proponent of. I need to know who this person is to see who I'm going to enforce. Now, if this guy's coming from work and he's got a huge criminal record, I still get, there's still no benefit to arresting this this guy, right? Because he's trying to do the right thing. I did not prevent a crime that day by arresting him. Now, however, if we have robberies on that same block and there are kids hanging out, drinking, smoking, targeted enforcement using broken windows and they're doing minor crimes and i stop them for a minor crime i believe there's a huge benefit to enforcing minor crimes both in intel gathering and prevention of crime so when i say broken windows of enforcement of minor crime i i'm a hundred percent with you i say all the time i don't even know why we give half the people the summonses and arrest half the people that we arrest. It's zero benefit for public safety. It's it's solely it's solely driven on either putting dots on the map for a CO or or to create to create uh, funds for for the government to use. I don't believe in that at all. I believe in targeted, heavily targeted enforcement and then hone down. And is that harassment? Absolutely, it is. I, I believe in, in the term of harassment, it would fall into that. But I believe that is the pathway to public safety that creates a, a safer society. That's what I believe when I say that. when I'm saying broken windows, I'm not saying just throwing out that net okay. and smashing everyone because I agree. Yes, that'll that'll deter a lot of things. But I'm I, I'm i not for a police state. I'm not. I believe I believe in the founding of this country. I believe in individual liberty. I believe people are human. How am I going to write you a summons for something that I do every day? It, it, it's it's you know, like things like that. But but at the same token, if I'm out there shaking people down, robbing people, uh, going after each other, shooting at each other, doing things like that. I believe then yes, I should. The law enforcement should have an eye on me and be targeting.
2: I actually don't disagree with you there. I I don't disagree at all. Um, The problem I think is the common sense that you have to do it that way. It's, it's most people don't. And second, the leadership doesn't care whether you do it that way or you do it any other way. What they just want to see the widgets on the spreadsheet. If we can move away from that, then we can have that balance. And I'll tell, and you know, I'll never forget, you know, June, 2020, George Floyd protests, working 19 hours a day, barely, no, no sleep. I'm getting called, also, also, you you get called racist, I get called coon and house nigger, you, you name it, right? Um, and then the captain's union releases a manifesto, if you will, where they're begging Commissioner Shea to get rid of Comsat. That was probably the biggest vindication that I've ever had because everything in that letter is everything that I had said four years prior and was called every negative thing in the book for. So how is it that we now have the commanding officers union echoing the language that I was saying four years prior? Um, So I think even they realize that pressure on them to then pressure the lieutenants, us, to then pressure the sergeants and the cops leads to this, you know, again, are we going to get those guys that you just explained? Of course, at times, but in, in the pursuit of r- numbers for numbers sake, we get everyone and inevitably everything aligns terribly. And we have that situation that goes viral. And who's left? Who's the hashtag? Who becomes synonymous with, 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 with racism, uh, racist policing brutality? That individual cop. The chief asking for those numbers, they're in climate control rooms in one police plaza. You never know their names. Right? They get to walk into community events, kissing babies. Everyone's happy that they're in the room. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're responsible for what you just saw. And, you know, that's what I realized. You know what? I'm actually speaking for more than just the community. You know, a few years ago, I realized I'm actually speaking for the cops also, which is why, um, you know, PSA2, I was very shocked when my own officers went to IAB and said that I was essentially not arresting people because they were black. You know, it was such an oversimplification. It was a situation where it came over as a robbery. Um, so obviously I was, this, I was on my way to leave the desk, but, you know, it was a robbery. So I I, I called, the uh, you know, my boy on the desk. Listen, I got to go to this job quick. I'll come and leave you. Um, when I get there, the officer's like, listen, it's a domestic, it's not a robbery boss. It's a domestic um, criminal mischief. Um, ex-girlfriend baby mama saw her you know her child's father in a car with another woman and kind of attacked the car he got out she ran and rather than do anything to her he called 911. said it was a robbery because he wanted a quick police response we my guys get there the 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 the, the, the suspect is 90 z is gone on arrival the woman um but her mother's on the scene right the the other woman that was in the car also runs because she's afraid that this woman This woman took like a bat or something and and broke the mirrors of the car. So I get there and they tell me, they update me on on what the job is. And um, the woman is not on the scene. So I tell the mom, it's best that you get your daughter back to the scene because she will be arrested in the future. She has children. If she's the only one with the children, ACS can get involved. It's a nightmare. She calls her daughter to come back on the scene. I walk over to the individual, the victim. I said, listen, bro, Good job not trying to take matters into your own hand. Good job calling 911 um, you know it's gonna be handled she will be arrested and he's just he's venting right And then at some point he's like, you know what man y'all gotta arrest her. She's just mad that I moved on you know they, I was like, are you sure I was like, what about your car? He's like, this shit didn't cost no money, you know what I mean so that's when I tell my guys hey guys um I tell them. um I think I told them 91 like a signal to them, like, wait, you know, like this is, he doesn't want her arrested. Um, that 91 will come back and haunt me, but I'll, I'll explain. So that's when the officers come to me, you know, privately, and they're like, oh, boss, while we were waiting for you to get here, we ran his name, and she actually has an order protection against him, so we're just going to get him instead. Now, this thing has caused controversy because some people said, order protection, it's out of my hands. And others said, no, this is not a scenario where there was criminal content like the order protection it exists but it wasn't violated and I don't know what your discretion is on that but my discretion was given the circumstances here he did not violate the order you know this isn't her address um he's in Brownsville she doesn't own Brownsville she walks up to his car and damages his vehicle like he my discretion was he she's the first she's the perp not him but some said oh, order protection it's out of our hands that's it. So they so when they told me he's been called 25 times to kind of change my mind, I said, not good information, but it doesn't change the circumstances. And one thing about me, I like to mentor. right? I like to guide folks in the right direction. So I then pulled him aside. I'm like, listen, brother, you just told me you have children and you're out here getting arrested so much. He's like, ah, you know how it is. You know, uh, you know, I grew up in the hood. I said, listen, I'm from Flatbush. I get it. But you don't belong in jail, brother. You belong out with your kids enjoying your life. Like, you got to make better decisions. So that conversation, guys, was manipulated into, you don't belong in jail. I'm going to let you, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure they don't arrest you. I'm the fucking sergeant. I don't, like, like, you think this is where, like, you think an order protection is where I'm going to, even if I had those, that's terrible biased views. You think this is the scenario that I'm going to use to exercise those views? You understand? So... They went to I.E.B. and, you know, you get the discovery. I mean, Eric, I'm, you, face, you face charges, I think, right?
0: Eric? <laughs> uh, eight <laughs> sets <seconds>, in one year.
2: <laughs> wow. So, so what they don't know is you get the discovery. So I'm literally reading the transcript of, you know, there are some cops I automatically knew they were involved with going to IAB, but others I was like, wow, man, you're laughing in my face every day, asking me if I want anything for breakfast, if I want coffee at the, at the deli. But you're sitting here saying that I'm 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 biased, you know I'm biased, I'm racist, and that was very shocking, man. Because it's like if it's some cop in Staten Island or in the Bronx who's never worked with me, who saw a snippet of something and you know reduces me to a rat, I get it. They're wrong, but I get it. But you've worked with me. You see, one of the, two of the cops, they had young daughters, right? One of them got the day off for his daughter's birthday. The other didn't, right? So I told them come in. I'll give you lost time from the desk. I'll let you leave early. That would, you know, it's a little trick that we do to make sure you're still part of the manpower. And what did I do, John and Eric? I picked up all the jobs in his sector as the Sergeant so he can get the day off. So imagine three months later, he goes to IAB. You know, it's like, I was just shocked, man. And I actually actually ran into him in the academy. um, And he actually came over and spoke to me and, and, and apologized and said, he was being coerced by the, by the delegates. But that's a whole different discussion. But that's when I realized, man, people misunderstand me so much that they're willing to try to destroy my career. And it's crazy because the number one thing that delegates had to represent officers for was activity-based. Performance monitoring was, 90% of the people in performance monitoring was for activity. After my fight, right, me and the others, after the film, after the, the you know, after our fight, Performance monitoring, like there's no one in there for activity anymore. The delegates are essentially just barely having to do their jobs because that was the, one of the main reasons they have to represent folks. Um, you know, and this is something I wanted to get out there because one of the biggest mistakes I did, right, when that article came out, I immediately, the Daily News, call, it came out on the Post, the Daily News called me. I was ready to tell my story. But the union said, it's an open investigation. It, this is bullshit anyway. Just leave it alone. Biggest mistake I made because... As I would get transferred to different parts of the department, that bullshit article makes it there a week before me. So everyone has that article in the back of my mind. Watch out for this guy he's a rat, he's racist, and it's only after two, three months of working with me, they're like, "You know what? Fuck all that shit that I heard about you. You tell me there's you let me like I'm in your corner, boss, mm-hmm. you understand And by the time I finally responded to that article, it was it was nine months later, you know one of the biggest errors. This is why I always tell people: speak your voice. You know, say what you have to say. Which is why, again, I commend you guys, um, especially not being afraid to point the finger at the top. I, th- I think that's where we connect the most. You guys have not been able to, not been afraid to call out the top, particularly what we're seeing with you know the, the 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 khaki pants crew, you know, and 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 the shit that they're doing, and they're being misguided. You know, we're not we're not focusing on them because they're being misguided. They're impressionable. They're young you know, they're, they're malleable, it's the leadership. It, it will always be the leadership. And, and I think that's the message that we have to get out there more than anything else.
0: You know, listen, you said some fantastic stuff. It's obvious you're an extremely intelligent guy and I, I respect everything you say. And again, there is so much commonality amongst the three of us. We have a lot more sim- similarities and differences. And, and we can see why we all worked on the same job. We actually all want the same thing. We want public safety, we want camaraderie, we want morale. And ultimately, what's the one thing that we all want together? And the commonality is exactly there. We want good leadership. And John and I have been so expressive about this, and I'm so glad to hear what you're saying. Again, you look at every organization in this world, and any organization that is successful and thriving, it's by good leadership. And this organization, unfortunately, eats its own. And it's riddled with weak, poor, and inadequate leadership because they lack training. Most of the chiefs in the NYPD get to the position that they're in by nepotism and also because they hung around long enough. They lack the training, the skills, and they actually lack the compassion and care for doing public safety. Do they actually care about public safety or self-serving for their own careers? And ultimately it's about self-serving because if they really cared about public safety, they would drill down and actually have ideas You know, for instance, what you're saying here about the ideology of documentation of warnings, I like it in some aspects. I think it would have to be tailed down because there's one warning, two warnings, but I do like the idea that you're being innovative. And in most cases, most of the inadequate management that we see in the NYPD is not innovative for public safety and for what's for the community. It's innovative for what's in the best interest for their own careers. That's where I find it extremely problematic. So we've all started out in this job, which is similar to all of us, operation impact. And impact was supposed to be having an impact on a particular area by flooding us. Again, it goes back to what I was saying, throwing out this big net. But what operation impact should have been, and this is what I used to tell my personnel, is when you have an encounter with someone, if it's a summons, if it's an arrest, or just an actual detainment or a conversation, you should ask yourself, is what is the impact of this encounter going to have on public safety in the community? So if I have an interaction, exactly what John was saying, if I have an interaction, I make an, obs- I, I make an observation, you know, I have a suspect, subject, walking down the street and I observe them in possession of a knife on their belt or in their pocket. When I have an encounter with this particular suspect, what is the impact going to be if I have a conversation? What's the impact going to be if I make the arrest? What's the impact going to be if I write a summons? That's what I believe policing should be about when it comes to intrusive police workers. Ultimately, what's the impact? If someone I stop and they're in possession of a knife, as John said, and, and they're coming from work, and if, I make, if I arrest this person, I don't make any impact on public safety. Actually, what I do is I make a negative impact because I just deteriorate the relationship with myself and the community. But if there is a young man who we know, we've had numerous interaction with, and he's on the verge of getting into that criminal lifestyle, or he's living, and, and this is what I encompassed numerous times, especially also living the one who all is some of the kids don't want to be part of this criminal activity. But they're forced to, especially working in PSA 7, the combines of the 4 0. If you live in the Patterson projects, directly across from the Mont Haven projects, you're forced to join a gang because otherwise you can't travel. You can't play basketball, just stuck in your house. So if I stop someone like that in possession of a knife, if I make that arrest, what impact did I make? But if I have a deep, meaningful conversation, maybe that one will have an impact. And I used to take part in the basketball games constantly myself to have an impact for these kids again it comes down to leadership and, and we all agree on the commonality. just weak inadequate leadership i think it needs to be stripped down from the top there has to be training. training 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 constantly even as these elderly chiefs age they have to be involved in training and their mindset has to evolve as digital tech as the technological era evolves most of these high-ranking uh these high-ranking poor management that we have in the NYPD, they don't understand social media.
2: Oh, did we just lose Eric?
0: Bro, no but again, I really appreciate your ideology. I think we're all on the same path here. Yeah. John, did it freeze? Yeah, uh, for should. a little bit. Oh, okay. don't
2: after social media, you froze. Just finish
0: that point. Yeah, I would say that it, unfortunately there becomes a huge separation with the weak, inadequate leadership and what's going on in the street with young people. And also the police officers that understand social media, they're not evolving, and that comes down to weak, inadequate leadership, incompetence, and laziness. Yeah, um,
2: it, it actually makes me think of something. And John, correct me. You know, I you know I, I listen to as much as I can. I, I read it even more. It seems you know I see which administrations you you criticize. So For my observation, I could be wrong. I, I see very little, if any, criticism on the Bloomberg Kelly administration and and I before you answer i just want to throw two things uh kelly reprimanded a lieutenant for creating a social media page i think the lieutenant was in manhattan so that that, that's an example of the leadership just not understanding evolution technology etc and now you have to have a social media page and put every gun collar on it right um second the kelly administration specifically um because bratton starts this from what i see the issues uh, and that disconnect but Kelly and Bloomberg exacerbate the issue. And whenever the numbers will were come, were come into question, you know Bloomberg, Kelly would just stare into the camera, but then Bloomberg said it in one of his uh, radio addresses, but then Kelly said it in private, which is actually something that the current mayor testified in the stop and frisk trial. So the current mayor testified in the trial and shared this, which the judge in her opinion said was part of the reason why she ruled the way she did. Kelly's words, specific words that Bloomberg echoed was, the reason for the numbers is to make it too hot to carry. Their thought is, we're never going to get every illegal gun, but if we can create an atmosphere where you keep it in the shoebox because you're constantly getting stopped, this is the atmosphere we need to create. Now, I can see the common sense appeal that that has, but what it fails to do is take into consideration the collateral damage, the, the externalities, the people that are not carrying illegal guns, the people that don't don't live a life of violent crime that have to be caught again, Eric, in that web, in that net. Um so that's the justification that the Kelly Bloomberg administration gave for these for, for being hyper numbers focused to make it too hot. If you're young and black and you're in Brownsville and you've been t- stopping first twice a week, right? And you're the construction worker, you know it's 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 annoying, it's harassment, it's causing a wedge between you and the police. If you're a young sh- shooter, in, in that same Brownsville and you've been stopped twice a week, it, the thinking is gonna make you think twice about bringing that gun out. Obviously the wedge between you and the department, folks don't care as much about because you're committing violence out there anyway. Um, so that's my criticism to that administration. I think they exacerbated it. And you know us being hired d- during that administration, think about it, we're young, most likely in our 20s when we get hired, right? We're impressionable. And you see, your, your, your ability and your willingness to challenge the leadership today, don't start today. I'll challenge it back to Mayor Lindsay in the 1960s. Like, who's to say that that chief, when I was in the academy with my recruit bag, was any better than the chiefs now? Granted, when you're young, impressionable, it's a paramilitary organization, you, you're under the impression that that person in that leadership position deserves to be there, belongs there, right? Because you, you're you forced to see them in this in this great light. But I think they had it wrong also, specifically with just exacerbating the numbers game and being hyper-broken windows focused, not in the surgical way that you've explained, but in the way that, unfortunately, we know that it gets carried out.
0: Sean, you mind if I jump in for a second? I just I just want to say, actually, we actually did a focus on Mayor Lindsay's administration where we interviewed uh, Detective Brady Jurgensen former detective Brandon new who wrote circle six and we talked about the correlation between what's happening now between what happened in the lindsay administration particularly the focus was on uh the incident at the mosque where we lost uh mm-hmm. Philip i have the book right there yeah oh you do. Know, okay what a great book right fantastic I, yeah. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see the interview but uh, it's pretty sharp yeah. if you can pretty sharp guys you know he's He's, he's much older now, but he still has his wits. He remembers everything about it. Great story. But I think John and I were pr- are pretty expressive and adamant about the weak and inadequate leadership that also goes on during the Bloomberg and Giuliani era. We're saying, ultimately, we think it was a great system, broke the broken window system, and there was more of a support system. I do agree that there was poor leadership because that, that, that correlates to this big net that they shouldn't have done, and the cops should have been better trained to understand stop and frisk. I think it was... You talk about being an unconvenient cop. I think it was a convenient time that they had a great support system and a valuable tool and that was distorted and misused. Oh, I agree. Listen, you know, and
2: you know, I have my criticisms of the current mayor, but one of the things that when people say I always push back on, he was I believe on CBS where he starts to explain, you know, despite being one of the voices that pushed back against unlawful stop and frisk he says, you know, stop and frisk is a good tool You know, I believe that you should use it, use it. And as he starts to get into the explanation of the legal, of the constitutional parameters, his voice goes down and the voice of the reporter goes up. And I thought that was very manipulative the way that CBS presented that. Because let's be honest, it is common sense good police work if you have an exact matching description, right? Running towards you in the direction that you're heading where there was just a shooting. If whoever says that you shouldn't stop that person is being unrealistic. But when we, you know, I, I dissected that case. And the number one reason that people were stopped based on what they checked off on the farm was furtive movement, right? And then Civil Liberties did a great job. They then asked 19 officers that wrote the most stop and frisk to define the word furtive. And no one could give the definition. You have to, you have to remember, when we are effecting stop and frisk, I know that shit was crazy. When you're conducting a stop and frisk, you are suspending the constitution. Think about that. That is a great power. You are suspending the Bill of Rights, the Fourth Amendment in particular. That is a, that is nothing to play with, right? The power to temporarily suspend the Constitution to conduct an investigation, and yet you cannot define the word that you're saying is giving you the right for that suspension. Think about that, guys. I mean, I know I don't. You guys don't need any convincing, but but some people like to push back. Um, and say that we just need blanket stopping for the way it was before. And it was wrong.
1: No, yeah, I think it's totally ignorant. Um, I, I, I've i spoken about it before. I don't know if I ever put it out. Most of my stuff I do is in tweets. So I'm always character limited. So I can only put out like a small thought and I'll just pop it over on thing. But I one thing I'll say is, yes, you're 100 percent right. Bratton starts broken windows and you see the crime decrease. Bloomberg comes in, right? Kelly steps in, right? And um, what happens as crimes decreasing? What are we doing? Our enforcement is stepping up. And I thought that was a huge failure. And that was what created a huge rift between not only the black, black and brown community, but every community in New York City, like and the police department, it created a huge rift because it just didn't make sense because these bad stops are happening. I, my, the reason I like broken windows is because I'm not stopping you based on my observation or based on a thought. I'm stopping you based upon probable cause. And I'm conducting an investigation after you already committed a crime. And that's something I always taught my guys. Whether you're a targeted repeat offender, you're a recidivist on the list, I don't want you stopping anyone unless they commit a crime whatever it may be, however minor or whatever, and we can investigate based upon that. I do believe in the Constitution, and I believe it. I I don't believe we should just be rolling up and stopping people. I remember when I was a rookie in the 120, a kid I had arrested the night prior, who was a bad kid, I won't say his name on here, but he was dealing drugs, lived on Jersey Street. He's standing in front of his house. The CEO of the 120 pulls up and goes, why is he standing there? I'm like, he lives there and he's like well you didn't stop him and i'm like no and you know i got i got you know i got like the treatment that i was the worst cop in the world meanwhile i had just locked up the kid the night before when he actually committed a crime but i'm not going to stop somebody in front of their house that's absolutely ridiculous and that was under bloomberg and that was the type of stuff that was going on because it was putting dots on the map it wasn't actually affecting public safety anymore. We were stepping up enforcement to make CompStat numbers essentially, and what we mean by dots on the map for those of you that aren't armed police officers is we're putting stops and, and documenting stops, summonses and arrests in areas where crime is happening, but it might not be related to the crime that's actually happening. We're just putting the numbers there so that it's basically, it's basically the CO could go up on Comstat and say, "Well, I have my guys there. Look, they're right there. Look at all this activity I have there. I don't know why it's still occurring, or it stopped because it, or it stopped because it, this is occurring." So I do believe they were, they are just a hundred percent as guilty. They're just less vocal, so I just don't jump on them because I don't really get the opportunity to as much. I have to kind of like correlate it to other things, and and it's it's kind of hard. But yes, I believe that failure. In, I believe the failure in broken windows actually did multiply under that administration particularly. Got it. 100% too.
2: So as you were sharing that, that story with the, with, the, um, with the CO, something came to mind. Someone I was in the police academy with who eventually made his way to Staten Island. He had moved to Staten Island. He was transferred there. Um, you know, you know Before becoming an official whistleblower, et cetera, I'd make my little comments on Facebook, et cetera, and he would always say, Raymond, you are still out there saving the whales? Get off your soapbox. You know, just, you know, just horsing around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then one day he called me. He said, you know what? I thought about you immediately. I said, what happened? He said, a week ago, he arrested a, a white kid in Staten Island with a book bag full of heroin. This is in 2014, before the opiate crisis is really out there, before everybody's given Narcan. And he said, the Special Operations Lieutenant, destroyed him because, quote, the collar was made outside of the zone, right? And what made him call me was because he was literally just finished processing an arrest for theft of service of a black kid that didn't pay his fare. And he got the, you know, he got the high five from the lieutenant. He got the lost time he needed the next day. And he said it it, it bothered him, you know, because he's like, he, he's one of those folks that think race is something that's completely behind us. But he said it was just too obvious what it was at that moment. Heroin is literally, we have about five times more people that die from overdose deaths than homicides in New York City annually, right? So it's a very serious issue. And when I worked in the 8.3, that's what made me realize how bad this thing was. Because for the most part, in, throughout Brooklyn, we don't have that issue. But when I was in the 8.3 as a Lieutenant, it, it was it was sad. It was mostly white folks who were from flyover states uh, Gentrifiers, if you will who you know we have to make notifications over the phone to family members and a lot of them were with roommates uh, it was it was sad but he arrests a kid with a book you know like 18 year old with a book bag full of heroin he gets screamed on the, the, the same guy gives him a high five when he arrests a black kid for two dollars and 50 cents come on jay eric come on guys we it, i, I mean if there's a justification for that, please share it. I don't think there is. We have to be, we, we cannot ignore that. Like think about it, we arrest a black kid, Hispanic kid. We talk about the fact that the Knicks suck and you know, life goes on. I've seen it every time. The rare occasion that you bring a white guy to the desk, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone's wondering who made the collar? What is he arrested for? When I would do prisoner transports, honestly, it looks, it looks like a, like a slave dungeon. Right, but the one or two white guys that will come through the guy doing the search, all of a sudden he's looking through the arrest paperwork. Everyone else he saw them, you know, did his documents, documentation, searched them. Whenever it's a white guy, we don't expect this, this treatment, and, and, and that to me is just at the surface level of how racism can exist or bias, right? Bigotry and racism, so you have to be racist to be a bigot, but you don't have to be a bigot to be a racist. With bigotry, there's actually hatred there, right? With racism, it's more of a bias issue. And unfortunately, treating people differently because of that bias. It doesn't mean you hate them. So I'm not, I, I stopped short at calling people bigots, although we have, you know, there's space for everyone in this world, but the racism that, the bias and the racism, the discrimination that can exist because of that, and not just in the way that the individuals treat people, but what can get written into the policy, like I personally don't think, I don't I, I like I don't think a policy of aggressive numbers would ever exist in the white parts of, of this city. Which is why when you first when I first learned your story about how you were police, I'm not gonna lie, it shocked me. I think I think you need to talk about that more honestly because a lot of folks don't expect that. But yeah, that so that's my uh, anecdotal story about
0: a situation in Staten Island. No, I think it's a great story, and since we're going to talk about the topic of diversity, I'd like to start moving this on a little bit. And what I'd like to talk about is: so you were part of a documentary, Crime and Punishment, which came out 2018. Am I correct? I think it was 2018, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. For a commander to be promoted, it's all about those numbers being right. No matter how much crime increases, if arrests and summons in- increase with it and surpass it you're doing a good job it generates revenue for the city those summonses after school two 17 year olds don't have their metro cards so they walk through the exit gate that's quota food but that's also a 17 year old who's a year from college you've affected their life in in a negative way for maybe decades
0: i felt that i have to do what i can do to change this which is pre-george floyd but i think 2018 is a pinnacle year where Laws started to evolve, policy started to evolve, particularly with the civilian claim review board who I was a target of. But how do you think the comparison is from that time, you were part of a diverse group that was part of the crime and punishment, but you were all selected, you all went through an academy process to be part of the police department. And post George Floyd, we've now lowered standards part of this diversity, equity, inclusion movement. I personally think that is an insult to black, the black and brown community to lower standards to have more black and brown people on the job. John, and I talk about this all the time. I've worked with some black, some black and brown folks in the police department far exceed my skills. And if they were to get the job because of lower standards, I just think it's an insult and completely unfair. So I'm curious to just to hear what is your take on the comparison to pre George Floyd and post George Floyd when it comes to diversity.
2: Um, yeah, fair question, excellent question. Um, the only thing is w- when it comes to lower standard, just be specific because the main thing that I'm seeing in terms of lowered standard was the, the physical requirement. I think it was the run, was it the JST or the run, something like that, that was uh, done away with. Um, I don't know if I interpreted it as specifically to increase black and brown. I just think since George Floyd, there's been a crisis in people leaving this job, and you know, the numbers aren't what they used to be. And I remember, you know. As commanding officer of community affairs, I've sat in on community meetings and there's a disconnect, like a generational disconnect where older homeowners in East New York feel that why should they have to wait excessive amounts of time um, for their needs when they call the cops? And meanwhile, the young folks is like, we don't want cops. And there's a big clash between the generations. But I, you know, we have to explain to her, it's because we don't have, the, the workforce is much lower. So if you can just be specific in terms of what you felt was specifically done for the purpose of increasing black and brown folks, then I can answer the question better. Was it the, the the run or was it something
0: else? Well, for one, sure, we know it was documented and also we actually saw in the papers about the physical standards being lowered to for this part of the diversity and inclusion movement as far as any uh any do test we haven't had any information on that but we also know because of all the recruitment ads and all the recruitment photos are totally elusive towards black and brown i mean you see some of these recruitment ads it's, it's a black female it's a black male it's a hispanic male hispanic female but we're not seeing any white males and females at all in the recruitment videos which so so i, I got think it. that's good yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: so I don't think the, the standards should have been lowered for any reason because, and I think what I read is no one's going to have to run a mile and a half. It's not about running a mile and a half. It's being, it's about being in the shape to ha- to do it, which translates to being in the shape to get, you know, to, to be able, so your heart doesn't stop if you do anything. You understand? Because we've had, let's be honest, we've, we don't really have standards that require us to re- maintain our, you know, a healthy lifestyle. And we've had situations where unfortunately we've lost members in the middle of action where their hearts have stopped. So I I disagree that the standards should have been lowered. Um, In terms of specifically focusing on minority recruitment, so if you you can go back to every public statement I've ever made, you can watch every video, I have never been one of those, we need more diversity to solve the issues. I, I had a very early lessons on the job that made it clear that that's not the answer personally. Now, in terms of employment discrimination, if a Black or Hispanic person wants the job, yes, we we you deserve the job if you want it and you meet the requirements, sure. Um, but I, again, had that early lesson that, like, I'll be honest, my very first supervisor after the academy was, uh, I a, mean, he's retired, but I, I'll, I'll refrain from saying his name. He mm-hmm. was a old school white sergeant. He was a detective. He had just made sergeant maybe a year before and I would watch him, like when the lieutenant wasn't in the room, he would th- tell us, like, you think you're saving the world with these collars? Like, like you think the lieutenant told us if someone asks for a ride to stop questioning Fristem, that is not, you don't suspend the constitution because someone asks for a ride. And this sergeant would tell us, if you do if you bring that shit to me, I'm ripping it up, I'm ripping it up in your face. And I would see him rip up 250s and said, No, you don't do this. So it wasn't. Meanwhile, the black sergeant was, you know, go get your numbers. So right there, I already understood diversity in itself was not the answer. Second, I don't. Diversity has strength if it's used properly. I don't think this department uses it properly. I don't think most institutions do. the The way to use diversity properly is I, I can't remember which one of you said it, like the NYPD 12, as we're known as, sit down with this, pick our brains, see. Okay, you want to criticize how things are done? How do you think it should be done? You know, something that John says all the time. Okay, you want to criticize and please show us the way. Because guess what? There are things that because of my life experience as a young Black man growing up in Brooklyn that I can add to the formula that can fine tune it, right? That you can, you might miss because it's not your fault. You, You just don't have, we don't have the same life experiences. So in that sense, that's true diversity. Cosmetic diversity, which is what I refer to as just making, getting more people on board just to say, look at the picture, I don't support that. And I don't think that's the answer. So again, if people are being denied the job and they're fully qualified and it's because they are not white, that's a problem. But I don't think the answer is to just get people on board for the sake of it, just to say, look, we have a better picture. Listen, this is probably the most diverse this city has ever been, and we are not seeing the results that you would think we would see because of that. You know, and and. You know, I made a post recently with folks that told me I'm causing controversy. And listen, I'm not going to not call something out. I don't care who's in charge. You know, I'm not, you know, if it needs to be called out, it needs to be called out.
1: No, I respect that. And honestly, that's why I respect you a lot, because I think that we are of the same school of thought. You know, Eric said it a while back. We're all treated, whether you're active, you're not active, you should be seen and not heard. Nobody wants to hear your opinion. And and I think that's the exact wrong message. Uh, You know, we coined the phrase on this on this podcast. We are the experts. But we didn't mean me and Eric. We meant you from your eyes as a lieutenant in the police department. You're the expert, not somebody in the media, not a politician who's never done this job. And same goes for any other profession. You're in that profession. You're the expert in that profession. So why is it that we cannot speak about what we see, the intricacies of it, especially to people that don't understand the intricacies of our profession? You know. So, And that's why I respect you a lot, and because we are of that thought. Hey, listen, we might not agree. We might be a little off in here, but we're going to hash it out. And at some point, we're going to meet in the middle, and and, and clearly you could see, we're having this conversation. We don't even really disagree on it. We haven't disagreed on one thing, you know? So, I mean, you know, and, 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 and nobody would think that, including myself, you know, um, you're a very misunderstood guy. You've always been misunderstood. Uh, me and Eric were talking two nights ago, and I, I, I'll tell you the story that you had already cleared up. I'll tell you how I heard it, and Eric heard the same exact thing, word for word. You responded to an order of protection, a guy violated the order of protection, and you took him out of cuffs and said, "We need more brothers like you on the street." Took him <laughs> out of cuffs and said, that, "And that's what I heard." Okay. And so did Eric. And that's what. So you cleared that up. Me, so yes. I appreciate you doing that, honestly, because that is something that has been circulating around this department for years. Yep. And I heard, and I said, if if that's true, that's terrible. But it wasn't true.
2: Not at all. But let me let true. me add let me add to that. You know, a very conservative. Officer in PSA two, um, we worked the detail together, and it's the first time I'd ever worked with him. I'd been in the command for two years, and maybe four hours into the detail, you know, it was a hot day, so I told guys, "Look, listen, guys, work it out amongst yourselves, get in the AC in the van." So I was in the van. Um, he comes in and he's like, "Boss, can I talk to you?" I'm like, well, "Yeah, what's, you know, what's up?" And he was like, "You know, I hope I don't regret saying this." He's like, but you're actually not a bad guy, man. I was like, the fuck? Like, what, what, what made you think I was a bad guy? You know, this boogeyman. Tell him, bring, the, bring me the one officer whose career I've ever hurt. I, I've never even written a CD, right? Bring me the officer whose career I hurt. And, you know, we got into a very deep political discussion, um, very deep. And then we brought up the elephant in the room, the situation, you know, that, that article. And then I showed him the printout from Central. You know, the ICAD, And he was absolutely floored when he saw that it said that the suspect is a female black male male victim states he's being robbed, you know, because the article actually interviews that woman as if she's the victim the whole time. And he admitted to me he was in the room when they were plotting this thing against me, but they delivered it to everyone else in the command like what you just said. So now that he's reading from the ICAP, the way the job came over, that demand that call nine one one was the victim the whole time. He he was like, "Wow, man! Like, thank you for showing me this. You know, we like you said we might not agree on everything, or we have different politics when it comes to certain things. But I'm I, I'm I feel good that I can stand firm and know that that's not what happened that day. You understand? Um, so I, I do want to segue into, you know, the book is coming out October seventeenth. I ripped my chest open and poured my soul into this work, you know, and I truly hope that members of the service and the public alike take, you know, the tools that I've, that I've provided, um, listen, it, even criticism, I'm open, which is what I respect about you guys. I remain dialectical. I don't know everything. If there's something that you need to shine a spotlight on, so I, you know, if I have a blind spot, please do, right? But I have poured my soul into this work. I believe that, Many of my activist peers, friends, right? Many of them have gone from reform to abolish, right? Some of them, they love me, but they won't take a picture with me anymore, right? They won't they won't support me. They won't repost something that I've written because they get heat. Now that they're abolitionists, it's like, wait, so you want us to abolish police, but your man is a lieutenant, you understand? So privately, the support and respect and love is there, but they have completely gone in another direction and what they feel is needed to solve these issues. They're cynical. And had I not been on the job, John and Eric, I can't say that I wouldn't be in the same place they are. Because intuitively, you keep seeing this issue. It doesn't seem to be getting solved. We're putting money at it. We're getting more cops. We're supposedly changing training, and yet we're still seeing this issue. But thankfully, 15 years, I can stand firm and say that the job has the potential to be what people want it to be what people expect it to be. It is a tax funded public good. I know about the origins, right? But this whole country has those similar origins and yet we don't say throw the whole country in the trash. At least most people don't, right? For the same way that someone, despite how dirty politics can be, someone can be ambitious and say, I'm gonna run for office and we support them. There's no reason why people that believe that policing can improve shouldn't be supported also. So on Saturday, October 14th, I am having this grand event, this experience in Brooklyn, in Flatbush at the King's Theater. And the reason why I'm calling it an experience is some people think it's a book signing, et cetera. Listen, I've gotten the top reviews in the industry. The book is going to be fine. This experience that I'm, I want to bring to members of the service and the public, you know, there's a lot of surprises. So I don't want to give it up. I want people to come in for an experience and leave empowered, knowing that we can actually work towards moving the needle. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, whether it's left or right. Um, members of the service, please show up. You know, when, when Crime and Punishment came out, we were there, right? People that were there to criticize and scrutinize were there. People that were there because they support me were there. This discussion, this experience that I'm planning for Saturday, October 14th, please be there. Some people have looked at the speakers and said, oh, there's some left bullshit. Oh, fuck Sean King, et cetera. It is not what you think, right? Believe me, it's not what you think. It's not a panel. Everyone's going to say their piece, and I'm going to speak and make it clear that, even though I respect everyone who's speaking, if you don't think Sean and I have our disagreements behind the scenes, then then I wouldn't be a true ally. You understand? If if you don't think me and the others have disagreements, I wouldn't be an ally. The, the brother of George Floyd, Terrence Floyd, is also one of the speakers, and he told me straight up one of the most one of the most difficult things for him to explain to people is why he has a relationship with the police, because they see him as, yeah, that was your brother, bro. That was your brother. You know, we were in the middle of a pandemic where everyone came outside and didn't care if they got sick because of your brother, and you out here rubbing elbows with the cops, yet yet he's gonna be there, right? And he's gonna say his piece. That day, you know, and I don't know how people feel about George Floyd, it's actually the day that George Floyd would have turned 50 years old. So he's gonna be there as a tribute to his brother, but he's gonna say his piece as to why he believes policing can work because he's not an abolitionist. Him and I speak all the time. Please guys, show up for this. It is not what you think it is. Show up and take notes. And please, I am open to criticism. Reach out. I hope to
0: see as many of you there as possible. I just want to say, piggyback again, what John just said before, because I always say in this job, this department in particular, treats us as if we were children and they want you to be seen and not heard. And I think that sometimes we talk about diseases in life and you say, Oh, that, you know, that's a silent killer. Well, I think that's a silent killer to this department is keeping us silence today. We broke barriers and we need more conversation as such. The public needs to see us convene. we need to be with the public. And, and communication is the key to success. And what I learned from you also, John and I have been on at, at odds with the unions and to this day I can tell you this Edwin if I would have listened to the advice of the Union I would have been terminated today they gave me bad advice and, and it is every reason for me to believe that the Union was embedded with the civilian complaint review board and with the job as far as they wanted me just to be silenced and go away just the same thing with your issue they just wanted you to be silenced and go away so with that. And same thing with John with the vaccine mandate. John was very expressive initially when they started out with the mandate to ask questions. And immediately he was silenced. Or at least they tried to silence. So with that, I'm extremely proud of you. You showed nothing but courage that you're willing to speak out now and before. And again, I, you know, I say opposition meets opportunity. But I think we have so many similarities and commonalities. And ultimately, we want the same outcome. And, and for that, you know. I, I have nothing but respect and and you're saying what you said before is, is is another problem where the brother of george floyd having a relationship with the police and people saying well, why would you talk to them and, and again it goes back to that old cliche saying of us and them and john and i attend numerous ccrb monthly meetings and we constantly hear this us and them mentality and i think with communication we could really strip that away Break that barrier, and cops have to stop just being seen. They need to be heard. We need to strip away from this ideology. Uh, and when I, I i have nothing but admiration for you, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Of course, I heard that story, and uh, I know it's complete hogwash. I was suspicious of it before. This job loves rumors, it's sexy, but it's it's obvious after actually speaking with you, it's completely farce. And I'm sorry they had to go through that. Yeah, thank you, brother. I appreciate that.
1: I mean, uh, like I said, I hope everybody attends. I hope everybody reads your book. I know me and Eric are gonna read your book. We're gonna highlight it. We're gonna go through it. We're gonna analyze it. I hope you come back on after it. Before I let you go, I wanna pick your brain on one more thing. we have been very expressive about the charge of criminal association. And I believe this is where you're highly misunderstood as well. Mm. I personally believe it's an easy out to attack you. I don't believe that cops should associate with criminals or partake in criminal behavior. However, however, people change, right? People change. And when someone's no longer involved in criminal activity, or maybe they are, and you have a personal relationship with that person, but you yourself do not take and partake in criminal activity with them nor do you disclose your your relationship is 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 nothing other than a conversation because as as an italian i believe that it's been used in the past specifically to target my community criminal association oh your uncle was this your grandfather was that it's like well what does that have to do with me though i you know i work every day i have nothing to do with me i went to a, my cousin's wedding um you know, and and we you know we saw the, the the political attack on on Sal Greco where he was where he was fired for being friends with Roger Stone. What are your feelings about criminal association? Mm-hmm. Because you know it's very you know you're, you're a very public guy. You have a lot of celebrity friends, and some of them have past. I myself have a criminal. I myself have a criminal past. So you know, I mean, like you know, what what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. A good question, important question. Um, it's funny because as a rookie, maybe my first four years on the job, I would run into people, I was in transit, I would run into people taking the trains and they'll, they'll say things like, hey, you know, I used to be on the job. I was like, really, yeah, what what happened? And several of them, at least three or four, it was criminal association why they got fired. And that's when I first understood that this was something that was being used. Um, with, with Greco's situation, it's the first time i would honestly seen a white guy, go through that. And, you know, people were very outspoken uh, from Fox News yourself that it was a political hit and that's, it probably was, you know. Um, In my community, it's virtually impossible not to know a felon, man. It's just reality of poverty and what happens in the hood. But like you said, if you're not involved in whatever it is that they're doing, you know, why should that be held against you? Um, So I don't agree that. I think... It's too broad, the criminal association. It has to be fine-tuned, more nuanced, because at the same time we don't want where it's obvious that someone is a criminal. We don't want cops involved in that because it it, it it doesn't make sense. Um, so I think it needs to be fine-tuned and, and more meticulous in, in how it's applied. The ambiguous blanket that that allows it's it's like a catch-all, right? As we say, it, it it remains ambiguous, so they can use it when they want to. Uh, the current mayor um, was affiliated with Mike Tyson. After he was released, um, you know, after he did this time, after, you know, technically became a felon. Um, and so many other people. I remember when the Barclay Center first opened, I had to, it was like Jay Z had consecutive concerts and a lot of friends were there, a lot of people were there who have passed and Ray Kelly was there throwing up the rock sign with them. You understand? So, you know, are we going to scrutinize the commissioner for that? Um, and, and, and so many other people have passed, but we do have to focus on what their lives are today. And if it's clear that they're not involved in criminality at the moment, um, think about the violence interrupters, for instance. Many of them, probably most of them, right, have those same paths, and yet they walk into precincts, they work with with us, et cetera, and it's not an issue. So because of the, again, the nuances, which is the fact that they have changed their lives, they're in a different direction, et cetera. So if all those circumstances exist, I don't think a member of the service should be scrutinized and and face discipline and be fired uh, for that purpose. But the circumstances
0: have to be there also. Uh, There's one more question that I wanted to ask you that coincides with that. So I've been pretty out of it and expressed about being a catalyst for change for CCRB and the Discipline Matrix. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on the Discipline Matrix that that made its inception from former Commissioner Shea in 2021? Yeah. I Have you read it? What is your perception? And what do you what do you think about the actual discipline matrix?
2: Yeah, good. Uh, shit, shit. Real good question. I, I still remember. I think it was uh, the current uh borough president of Queens who was the council member that that uh, pushed that bill and and essentially because he was the public safety um he was yeah, he was in charge, he was the chair of public safety, and that's what we you know we got from that. So if you aggregate the data, right? If you look at CDs and, and discipline. When it's just this commander or this precinct and this person, you know, giving out what the discipline is for a particular violation of the patrol guide, uh, no one's paying attention. But when you put the data together, you do start to see a, a bias, right? Where a white guy, same exact thing in Staten Island, does, you know, a black cop in the 113 does it and one is hammered and the other one is given a slap on the wrist. So the matrix essentially eliminates that it creates what's supposed to be impartial my so in that sense just like with any law book where, where there's reprimand you have to make it clear what the consequences are when you make it too much of a range either from you know from up to five days up to 10 days etc it it, it it has to be more nuanced my criticism though is what those reprimands are it, like where did they come up with <laughs> what, the, what the discipline should be. I think that's that needs to be revisited because some of the things that are there, what the reprimand is, are, to me, are egregious. You understand? So th- that's what I question about the matrix. But the need for the matrix to exist, I think it's fair. I think it makes sense with, again, any law book, any rule book, you have to make it clear what the consequences are. And before, it wasn't clear, which is why we had such wide bias. Um, and, and, you know, it was a little embarrassing that we was supposed to be one department, but the same exact behavior was being treated so different. But at the same time, that's exactly what the, that's exactly how the policy reflects to the public. So to me, it's not, it's really not that shocking that it, it happens internally. Uh, so that's my
0: thoughts on the matrix. Uh, I, I would say this, uh, I agree that we need some type of documentation to show that there's equitable discipline amongst the department. But what you're saying, that you know that there's some type of uh, discipline towards bigotry and, and could be correlated with racism, John and I, our argument is that this discipline matrix leaves too much room for nepotism. And I think that it actually, what you're saying, it could actually leave room for racist and bigotry ideology in the same way, because it's broken up into three columns, right? You have your middle column, which is your automatic discipline. But to the left, if you're former commissioner Shay Sun, you're going to get the mitigating factors which is the lowest penalty possible mm-hmm. but if you're south greco you get the aggravating factors and ultimately terminated so I, 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 that's where i think this leaves too much room for potential nepotism, and, and and bigotry is what you're saying if, if there's actual bigotry it would be the same thing with discipline matrix would you agree on that
2: that's a that's a fair fair argument Um, And that's where the fine tuning needs to be to make sure it's truly equitable, truly impartial. Unfortunately, you know, subjective once there's room for anything to be subjective, human beings will be human beings. And this is why we have to write it as objective as possible to take out that subject subjectivity. Because unfortunately, as you said, nepotism, cronyism, these are things that are rampant in the department. We we learn it very early um, and it continues to be an issue. I can't wait to be back, guys. Honestly, I can't wait. Um, John, just ever you know, just hit me up. Let me know when to come back. Uh, we, I think we have a lot more to discuss. And I, honestly, I, this is, I think, this is a national. This needs to be on a national uh, forefront because policing as a whole gets scrutinized, no matter what, no matter where the incidents happen that become viral. Um, so, I'm, you know, off, you know, off camera. I'm, you know, let's let's talk some ways that we can get this discussion on a national level. Um, with everyone in the room, this you know, wherever they fall on the spectrum. 100%.
1: Listen, we did an hour and 40 minutes where me and Erica, probably one of the biggest proponents of broken windows policing out there on the national stage talking about it. And you what people would say is you're against broken windows, right? And what what did we see in an hour and 40 minutes? We haven't disagreed on one thing, nothing. There wasn't one part of our conversation that really, I mean, we're all right around the same thing. And I think when we, we speak nationally, that's what we'll see. The fringe on both sides is a very fringe, small minority where we're, I you know, I I always say I'm a moderate. People say I'm a right wing extremist. I, 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 there's more Republicans that have me blocked on social media than there are Democrats. You know, like it's it, so like I I go I don't I don't discriminate. I'll go after you if, if I think you you you're, you're calling bull. You know, I, I I can't say enough about how much I respect you and the courage it took for you to speak up at the time you did. So even though at the time you did, I disagreed with you, I still respected your courage because I said, wow, he is really sitting out there. And I think that's the way forward is that us as individuals sit there as the world changes and we stay who we are. And I think that's exactly what you've done you has you has your ideology evolved a thousand percent we get older we get wiser we get smarter but you've been the person that you've been and that's what i respect about you the most you're welcome on here anytime any issue uh this like i said before we started this and offline i think that this is the start of a much larger conversation nationally and uh i i can't i can't uh i can't uh, give you kudos enough, dude. Honestly, I really can't. I consider you a friend and I consider you a very, very smart man, and somebody that cares about public safety, true public safety and everyone as a whole, not just the black and brown community, not just your viewpoint. You're willing to hear others' opinion and you're willing to have the discussion. And I think that's where we all need to be. That's true love. That's how we
3: get together.
2: Thank you brother I appreciate your words uh same thing back at both of you guys i truly look forward to being here again it's i think it's it's inevitable so i look forward to it
0: uh, absolutely it's been nothing but a pleasure it's an honor to actually meet you and just not hear gossip and but you know i appreciate watching crime and punishment i appreciate your story and i always say opposition meets opportunity but it's not opposition here we have so many commonalities thank you for what you do thank you for continuing to be active thank you for speaking out for the cops and if you fight, I wish you nothing but luck with this book. I think it will go well. I hope this conference goes well. I wish I could attend. I'm out here in Thailand. It's 11 hours ahead. It's nighttime for me, and, but I'm loving it. It's been a pleasure, you know, talking about diversity, uh, this beautiful culture out here. Thailand is actually very cosmopolitan, and everybody gets along great here. It's interesting to see, you know, outside the states, how people could really mingle together and and be in a multi- multicultural environment. So yeah i appreciate it i do see that we will do this again this could have went on three four hours i'm sure so i I thank you for your time taking it out for us appreciate it thank you guys
1: Edwin, anything you want to add before we go last words brother
2: um just please show up show up be there at king's theater i promise you you will not regret it i I, it's an activation for something much bigger all
1: right you heard it here new york's finest retiring on Unfiltered podcast with the great and powerful edwin raymond We'll be back
3: at you. Law enforcement professionals dedicate their lives to serving and protecting our community. But who's protecting their financial futures? That's where Laidlaw Blue comes in. Our wealth management platform is specifically designed for the law enforcement community. Laidlaw Blue is a division within Laidlaw Wealth Management run by retired New York City detective John McDermott. His status as a retired detective uniquely positions him to establish a deep connection between Laidlaw Blue and the law enforcement community. Our platform is easy to use and provides a range of financial services, including investment management, retirement planning and insurance solutions. With Laidlaw Blue, you can secure your financial future and provide for your loved ones. Our team of experienced financial advisors understands the unique challenges and opportunities that law enforcement professionals face. We're here to help you navigate the complexities of financial planning and achieve your goals. Laidlaw Blue. Secure your financial future today. Book a meeting using the QR code displayed or call us directly on 888 blue That's 888 blue